3: Morning. I'm Jane Pauley and this is Sunday morning happy Valentine's Day a little early Cupid's big day has been celebrated for centuries today many of us mark the occasion with flowers and candy but this morning we thought we'd take a closer look at love what is love how can it be found and kept alive you might call Susan Spencer's story a labor of love
4: It's almost
2: Valentine's Day. So, do you believe in true love? I think true love is attainable. I mean, I'm a hopeless romantic, but I do. (laughs) I mean, I found it. Do you believe in love at first sight? I believe in lust at first sight.
4: (laughs) Chasing True Love, coming up on Sunday morning.
3: Today is also Super Bowl Sunday, with Cincinnati's Bengals taking on the Los Angeles Rams. Ted Koppel has taken a closer look at America's game and shares a life lesson we can all learn from the agony of defeat.
2: We got robbed. The ref
5: cheated. breeze. That was three years ago.
6: No flag.
5: And for fans of the New Orleans Saints, it still hurts.
7: There's nothing you can do. You can just rail against the knight.
5: It's not that football fans handle defeat particularly well
8: cheat them saints
5: especially when a bad call costs a trip to the super bowl i can't say what i want to say but lord but there may be a lesson buried in the pain ahead on sunday morning
3: then on to a trailblazing comedian from a pioneering television show jim axelrod is in conversation
9: with chevy chase
6: live from new york it's saturday night
9: Chevy Chase was the first one to say those iconic words. Now, decades and dozens of films later, it might be time for Chase to take a look back. Was it odd that suddenly you're the guy on the cover of magazines?
10: No. I felt pretty strongly that I was the funniest.
9: (laughs) A conversation with Chevy Chase later on Sunday morning.
3: Luke Burbank looks in on weddings where the bride and groom have stand-ins. Plus, thoughts from Jim Gaffigan and Josh Suftal and his mom are back with us on this Sunday morning, February 13, 2022. We'll be back after this. For Valentine's Day, we sent Susan Spencer in search of true love, or at least the meaning of true love. And we're happy to report she's back with some lovely news.
11: Lust is when anyone will (laughs) do. In
3: 2004,
4: National Geographic photographer Jody Cobb set off on any reporter's dream assignment. Go find love
11: and capture it on camera. Scientists say that there are three stages of love, lust, romantic obsession, and long-term attachment.
4: She started with lust, who wouldn't? And that took her, where else? To spring break in Cancun.
11: Did these people know you were coming? I was really out of place on the beach. I was overdressed. (laughs) You were dressed. (laughs) I know, I had clothes on.
4: Stage two, Romantic obsession, or attraction, required
11: a trip across the ocean, to Italy. You're obsessed. It just takes over your whole life. It's a state of need. You can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't think straight. (laughs) Her photographs from the streets of Rome and Florence certainly make her point. Can you imagine a world with everyone in that state of romantic obsession, we wouldn't have roads, we wouldn't have bridges, we wouldn't have a vaccine. No, we, you know, we'd <laughs> be sitting around be, looking at each other. Right? We'd all be <laughs> nuts.
4: Which is why with any luck, romantic obsession
11: becomes attachment. I found a couple in Ohio with 20 children and you said 20? 20, 20 children? children. That's attachment. That's, yeah, (laughs) 75 grandchildren and 132 great-grandchildren. So did you come away from this feeling like true love really does exist? Of course it does. (laughs) (laughs) It's a universal emotion. It's the strongest emotion we'll ever feel. So maybe it's not
4: surprising that according to a CBS News poll, 86% of Americans agree that true love is real. And even more encouraging, Two out of three say they know this because they have experienced it. How would you define true love?
2: I think it's soul recognition. Like you see each other deeply. The person becomes a part of you, like your arm, like your nose. You are considering them with every move that you make. This is the first book that is the first one accidental diva tia
4: williams has written the book of
2: love more than once she's a
4: best-selling romance novelist
2: part of writing romances is you know trying to solve the unsolvable what brings people together what makes people stay together eva loves shane and he loved her
4: but don't necessarily expect to find real life answers on the printed
2: page No one shows in a romance novel the work that it takes to sustain it over a long period of time. Well, why don't you do that? Because it's boring. (laughs) Because nobody would read it. (laughs) Who would read that? Like the day in and day out of who's getting the toilet paper? You know, I'm at the gas station, do you want anything? You know, it's a fantasy. And especially now in these weird times, everyone wants an escape. How does what we see in movies compared to what we see in real life
12: life takes too long you know movies uh, especially romantic comedies usually about an hour and a half so this is amazing yeah a pretty great view
4: screenwriter john patrick shanley's story of a somewhat quirky love won him an oscar
12: i'm in love with you
4: for the 1987 romantic comedy moonstruck snap out of it He says at first he wasn't sure about pairing Cher with the much younger Nicolas Cage, but love works in mysterious ways.
12: When I saw the screen test, it was incontrovertible. They were born to do this. But what tells you that? The way their eyes light up when they see the other person with both uh, hunger, aggression, and desire. When somebody looks at you with naked excitement, that you're alive, that you exist, and that they can talk to you, you're halfway home.
10: <laughs> we are here to ruin ourselves, and, and to break our hearts, and love the wrong people, and die.
12: If you actually are deeply enamored of another person, and you want something from them, try the truth. We do die. We do die. It wakes them up to, oh my God, it's happening. Time is running through my fingers and I'll never get it back. I should do this thing. (laughs) Tomorrow may never come. I could be hit by a mail truck. Let's go.
4: (laughs) This is love. There you go. Which do you think is harder, the falling in love part or
12: the staying in love part? Falling in love is sort of outside your purview. It happens to you. Maintaining a loving relationship with another person uh, I'm always hearing that it's a it's a lot of work.
4: You don't believe
11: that,
12: and you know I'm alone.
11: Yeah, <laughs>
12: <laughs> maybe I'm alone. I wasn't going to bring that up <laughs> in the work ethic area. <laughs> to describe it primarily as a lot of work seems to me to be excessive.
4: But if a little work appeals to you, psychologist Arthur Aaron is your guy. A research professor at Stony Brook University, he says his steps for keeping love alive are proven to be effective. For starters, try doing novel and exciting things together.
6: If you've never gone to an opera, go to an opera. If you've never kayaked on a river, you know, kayak on a river. See, the idea is that when you're initially with someone, there's so much excitement of forming the relationship, of connecting with this other person, but you get used to them. But if you do something new and challenging with the partner, it's associated with the partner and your relationship and so it helps rekindle it.
4: And you, as a scientist, absolutely believe in true
6: love. Yes. In fact, that's what made me start studying it. (laughs) I fell in love. And in fact, the person I fell in love with became my long-term collaborator, and in fact, my wife.
4: (laughs) And they've been married for 47
2: years. As for our other love experts? I was single for a really, really long time, and was sort of getting into it. But then... But then (laughs) I got on the dating apps and I see this beautiful man. And then we went on the date and it was magic. And then the date just never ended. Do you believe in true love?
11: Well, I don't think love cares if I believe in it or (laughs) not. (laughs) Like gravity, (laughs) like climate change. It just is. It just is have you found true love in your life
12: more than once (laughs) some people have loved me and i have loved them Uh, and uh, it's been a wonderful part of my life an important part of my life
3: now you're cordially invited to a wedding unlike any you've ever seen luke burbank explains
13: we're gathered here today it's almost valentine's day and love is in the air as evidenced by this intimate and informal wedding that took place just last week in Big Fork, Montana.
8: I do. I do.
13: With the power vested in me... But there's just one thing. These aren't the brides. They're actually stand-ins for a real bride and groom who are thousands of miles away. So how is this possible? Because of an obscure Montana law that permits double-proxy marriage, a legal wedding where neither person even sets foot in the state.
14: Everywhere I go, people just go, double proxy marriage, what's that? It's dusty, (gasps) let me hand this down to you.
13: Peg Allison has been Flathead County Clerk of District Court since 1993, which means she oversees all legal marriages. It was about a decade into her tenure before she'd even heard about this law, thanks to a call from a lawyer looking for a creative way to marry a couple that was overseas.
14: I think I literally said to him on the phone, you're kidding me.
13: The law has been on the books since Montana became a territory, likely started to let young miners who'd come west for work marry their sweethearts back home. These days, at least one person getting married has to be a Montana resident or active member of the military.
14: It's a complete bizarre piece of code. And as far as I know, there's not a single other state in the union that allows double proxy.
13: And here in Flathead County, it's become a big business. 80% of all weddings in this picturesque corner of the treasure state are actually by double proxy, including 295 last month alone.
14: In 2019, we did 1200 and then COVID hit. So in 2020, we went from 1,200 a year to 4,200. And then in 2021, we did another 4,300 of them.
15: Armed Forces Proxy
16: Marriages, this is Tom, may I help you?
10: With COVID, it got so crazy. This phone didn't stop ringing, so we have to 10 o'clock at night, just shut the phone off. But we were getting no rest. We
13: just weren't functioning, yeah, it got insane. TOM AND TERESA KENNEDY RUN ARMED FORCES PROXY MARRIAGES OUT OF THEIR HOME IN BIG FORK. IT'S ONE OF JUST A HANDFUL OF COMPANIES THAT PERFORM THESE MARRIAGES. BEFORE THE PANDEMIC, THEY SAY THEY AVERAGE AROUND 40 WEDDINGS PER MONTH. HOW MANY OF THESE WEDDINGS DID YOU HELP SORT OF FACILITATE LAST YEAR? CLOSE TO 2000, I THINK.
10: Mm-hmm.
13: YOU STOP mm-hmm. COUNTING BECAUSE IT JUST BECOMES A LOT OF WORK. FOR $750, THE KENNEDY'S WILL HELP A COUPLE file all the necessary paperwork to become legally married in Montana. And it might sound like an odd way to walk down the aisle, but it worked out for Rachel Francione and her husband, Michael. He's currently overseas, but they got married last March ahead of his deployment, unsure if they'd have time for a more traditional wedding.
4: We just got an email saying, um, congratulations, you were married in the majestic mountains of Glacier Park. My mom and I were in the kitchen and she ended up putting a little paper towel on my head and
1: started singing the little wedding songs.
13: (laughs) Being legally married actually allows Rachel to know more information about her husband's whereabouts when he's deployed. And there are other benefits to being married in the military. For one, getting a basic housing allowance, which helped Jacob Seifert and Amina Kamau save to buy their first home.
0: For us as a couple who's just starting out, It sounds, you know, you can make it sound trite that this financial thing was important to us, but that, that really helped us out.
13: When they got married in December of 2018, Amina, a political campaigner, was home in Florida while Jacob, then an Air Force senior airman, was stationed in Korea. With Tom and Teresa's help, they took the plunge. But that didn't mean Amina was quite ready to tell her family that she'd gotten married in Montana via the internet,
1: they just blinked and my mom had to take us some time to accept that I kept it from her, but knew that when we did it, we had goals in mind, we had a vision and that we knew we were each other's person. My dad was like, oh, this is great.
10: (laughs) Do you Teresa as proxy for Ryan Weaver, take Miranda Bass to be your wife? I do. I love it. It's, we're in the moment. You know, you're know, you standing in for someone. You're,
13: you're doing something that we feel is a patriotic duty on our part. So much so that Tom, Teresa, and their employee, Rachel Bodick, perform actual vows on behalf of their clients, even though there's no legal requirement to do so. Do you, Rachel, as proxy for Miranda Bass, take Ryan Weaver to be your husband? I do. On the day we were there, Teresa and Rachel said I do's on behalf of five couples.
14: Really felt honored to ask, be asked to do that because I know that it means the world to the people that we're marrying, and it's such an easy thing for me to do. Another stack of licenses for
13: you. Meanwhile, Peg Allison, who at one time had never even heard of this quirky law, has a new problem. Double proxy marriages have become so popular, she worries her office might not be able to keep up. So. We
14: should probably just stop the interview right here so that, you know, you won't have anything to air. This could be a big problem for me. It could be a problem for my office because I've got my hands full.
1: It's 3 o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet pillowy dough. And get this. You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you.
3: On to a love interest of a different kind, football. On this 56th Super Bowl Sunday, whether the Bengals or the Rams win, senior contributor Ted Koppel finds real meaning in the final score.
11: The Buffalo Bills take the lead
9: with a minute 54 to go
5: in the fourth quarter. You'll find Jake Verko and his Bills Bunker on YouTube. Jake is a sports reporter with a passionate bias. What he provides that's sometimes missing among professional sports commentators is a front row perspective on the thrill of victory. Bills! And the agony of defeat.
9: This is bad. 17 strikes!
5: That was three weeks ago in a magnificent playoff game between the Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs.
9: 17 seconds.
0: Down the middle to the end zone! And there it is! What a game this has been! Three lead changes within the last two minutes of the game.
5: With Buffalo up by three, Jake had every reason to believe that his beloved Bills were one game away from the Super Bowl, but...
13: The Chiefs still have an opportunity. Down the middle! Oh, my goodness! They're in field goal range with that one.
5: In the immortal words of Yogi Berra, it ain't over... And the kick... till it's over. And it wasn't.
13: It's good. This game is going to overtime.
5: In overtime, if your team gets the ball first and scores, not just any score, it has to be a touchdown, you win. So getting the ball first can be a big deal. That is decided by the flip of a coin.
0: And the Bills lose the coin toss. If you can get that coin flip, you're going to win. It isn't quite
5: that simple, but Jake's right. The odds favor the team that gets the ball first. Here it is. The Chiefs got the ball. The Chiefs won.
13: (laughs)
0: I'm not a fan of the overtime rules in the NFL, but I'm not going to complain about them. Congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs on a hard-fought victory.
5: Nice. Gracious. The quarterbacks showed class, too. Those young men demonstrated something that the country has all but forgotten. How to win with dignity and lose with grace.
15: In the days afterwards, there was this really compelling gesture from Chiefs fans. They made $13 donations to the charity set up by Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Bills.
5: Jason Gay is a sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Chiefs fans made thousands of $13 donations, 13 being the number of seconds it took the Chiefs to tie the game and send it to overtime.
15: This resulted in an amount in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it was really kind of a touching thing when you consider how acrimonious that ending could have been.
5: Jason, I don't think it will come as any shock to you if I tell you that what I'm driving at is the question of whether our sports fans are capable of doing something that our political fans are incapable of doing it.
15: I think sports, mercifully, is one of the last places where we still have commonly accepted facts. When the scoreboard says 30-27, we don't go around and say it was 42-38. And I think that is a significant difference between our athletic platforms and some of the other platforms in our lives.
17: Well, there is something about sports that I think uh, kids learn pretty early on which is maybe this time I won't win and you'll win, but maybe the next time, if I work harder, I'll win. We all have to play by the rules to have the game be meaningful.
5: Condoleezza Rice, National Security Advisor and Secretary of State in the George W. Bush administration, is a professor at Stanford and a lifelong passionate football fan. For years, in fact, Dr. Rice let it be known that she really yearns to be commissioner of the National Football League. Not anymore.
17: But as I've gotten older and wiser, I've started to think that maybe it's not that great a job at all. I'll just stay a fan.
5: Probably a wise decision. Between charges of racial discrimination and sexual harassment in the league, it's become a very tough job indeed. And sometimes, of course... Those enforcing the rules get it wrong, and that lands in the commissioner's lap, too. As was the case three years ago in another playoff game between the New Orleans Saints and the L.A. Rams.
15: We have a 20-20 game. Drew Brees lofts a pass to the sideline, and a Rams cornerback just completely takes out the Saints receiver.
10: Brees.
5: the official missed the call.
15: So this really egregious penalty, a penalty that you could rightfully argue kept the Saints from scoring and going on to the Super Bowl, just was allowed to happen.
6: This is a travesty. Worst call ever.
7: First of all, it was evident to anybody in the stands that our receiver was interfered with.
5: You may have recognized this particularly rabid Saints fan as James Carville, who sometimes also dabbles in Democratic Party politics.
7: I was just aghast. And I said, well, they're going to have to do
5: something. Now, the the commissioner did apologize to the coach, didn't he?
7: That's great. (laughs) You know, if I I run over your grandkid, I say, gee, I feel terrible about it. And what else could he do? Of course he had to apologize.
5: Did anybody think of bringing a lawsuit? A lot of people. file.
12: If we can find an attorney in a city of New Orleans worth his salt or her salt, willing to take on the NFL, I'll put my house on the line.
7: I thought about being a plaintiff on one of them. But I have a lot of lawyer friends and I'd be glad to follow suit,
15: you know, but you're not going to win.
5: But ultimately, what happened?
15: Nothing. We're still in a situation where NFL games are very often left to subjective decisions by individuals on the field. The fans
5: had to sort of eat it, right? (laughs) Ultimately, though, in sports and in politics, there's a final authority and an understanding. Whether it's handed down by someone in a striped shirt or a black robe, fair or unfair, for the good of the sport and sometimes for the good of the nation— you live with it, as Al Gore did in the wake of a 5-4 Supreme Court decision that delivered the presidency of the United States to George W. Bush.
15: Let there be no doubt, while I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. For the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession.
17: That is how democracy has to work. It is really important that uh, that rule, that understanding, that I may not like the outcome, but I am going to respect the outcome, that's extremely important. Now I will say, there's something that's also forgotten a bit about 2000. There were people on the other side, some of them in Congress, who said, he's not really my president. So maybe that erosion started before we actually realized that it had started. We really have to get back the sense that our elections are the test of democracy and that when they're over, we move on.
5: So are we comparing a bad call in a football game to the Supreme Court decision that cost Al Gore the presidency? Not even close. Although at some point in football and in real life, in order for the system to function, you simply have to accept when there are no further appeals.
7: In spite of every fact, every court decision, 60 court decisions, six gazillion
5: recounts. No, you're talking about 2020. I'm sorry, 2020.
7: You have, I don't know how many different recounts that all find the same thing, that there's no evidence of fact at all that anything other than minor discrepancies that happen in any election, had an effect, and you got 35% of the country that just believes otherwise. They're not going to change. They're just not. We've seen where
5: a refusal to accept that notion can lead. In a few hours, though, about 100 million Americans will gather before their televisions to bear witness to one of the few remaining national events where accepting the final score as fact remains a widely accepted practice.
3: Now, Super Bowl thoughts from our Jim Gaffigan.
6: Well, it's here, Super Bowl Sunday, America's most American holiday. The food, the flyover, the halftime show, The spectacle of what Super Bowl Sunday has become makes perfect sense. America turned Jesus' birthday into a shopping spree, Independence Day into a barbecue, and Memorial Day into a white sale. But somehow Super Bowl Sunday has become an exact reflection of who we are. Who's excited for Super Bowl 56? Today's game will feature a mix of blood pumping, patriotism, violence, and pageantry, dressed up in good old gluttony and consumerism. We will eat while we watch the game. Is there anything more American than eating while you watch other people be active on television? And unlike a Thanksgiving turkey or a Christmas fruitcake, today is about eating things we actually enjoy. Nachos, buffalo wings, subs, sandwiches, pizza, anything you want. This is America's day. It wouldn't be Super Bowl Sunday without some incessant, unapologetic consumerism, the lifeblood of the American soul and economy. The commercials that air during the game will not be viewed as interruptions, but embraced as infotainment, which we will immediately post about on social media, turning the country into an enormous involuntary focus group. America needs this Super Bowl Sunday. In my lifetime, we've never been so divided. Not just two different sides, two different realities. People that are right versus people that are right. We need a day to sit at home and root for a team. We haven't had an opportunity to do that in like an hour.
9: Good evening, I'm Chevy Chase and
10: you're not.
3: From Saturday night to Sunday morning, Chevy Chase is in conversation with our Jim Axelrod about a life in comedy.
5: I mean, he's been club champion for three years running, and I'm no slouch
9: myself. (laughs) Don't sell yourself short, Judge. You're a tremendous slouch. It was all right there in 1980. You take drugs, Danny? Every day. Good. When Chevy Chase made Caddyshack. So, what brings you to this uh, nape of the woods, neck of the wave? How come you're here? And it's still here today. A year after a near-fatal heart failure. The heart thing was a year ago. How are you feeling? Oh, we've removed it. His relentless deadpan. Didn't need it much. It's much better now. Funny. Why did you leave SNL? Hate it. Or caustic. <laughs> Even raunchy, as we got to see for ourselves during our conversation.
10: And Out of all those characters, which one is closest Fletch. to you? I think Fletch. Because it really was me, pretty much. What part are you? Uh, my.
9: It all still makes it hard to tell if Chevy Chase, Chase is, is just joking. What do you think of Saturday Night Live now? It stinks. No. Wait a minute, I, I can't tell if you're joking or serious. No, I'm not serious. That wit was the foundation for one of the most successful comic acting careers over the last half a century.
6: Live from New York,
10: it's Saturday
9: Night! The first to say those words...
10: Good evening, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not.
9: The first to anchor weekend update. <laughs> the fall-down breakout star from Saturday Night Live's first cast that
0: included Dan Aykroyd. Well, uh, I don't understand how you ended up on top of my wife, that's all. I mean, uh... Gilda Radner.
8: What?
0: The editorial was about the Supreme Court decision on the
10: death penalty, not death penalty, the death penalty.
8: Oh, well, that's very different.
10: Yes.
9: And John Belushi, who seemed to have a special talent for getting under Chase's skin.
10: There are nine different countries where March comes in like a frog and goes out like a golden retriever. That's not the weird part. No, no, the weird part is is the frog.
7: The frog part is... The weird part is...
10: (laughs) (laughs) Anytime I could find a little piece. There's John.
9: If there was any resentment... It came as no surprise to Chase. Suddenly, you're the guy on the cover of magazines. You're the first among equals. Yeah. Was that odd?
10: No. I felt pretty uh, strongly that I was the funniest.
9: <laughs> he could afford to laugh it off when he left during SNL's second season.
6: Uh-oh,
10: there we go my fault, very much my
9: fault. A string of movies was about to make Chevy Chase.
10: Yes!
2: I like it!
9: A Hollywood heavyweight,
2: Fletch. Uh, now John who?
10: John (laughs) Cocktoast. It's
0: a beautiful name. Well, it's Scotch-Romanian. It's an odd combination. Yeah, well, so are my parents. Mm
9: The okay, National Lampoon's Vacation franchise. Where's Edna?
0: She's in the car.
10: Good. Come on, kids, get your butts in the car. Go.
0: Don't you want to look at the Grand Canyon? Yeah. Great. Ah! Hallelujah.
9: Hallelujah. And the Three Amigos.
7: I'm Lucky Day. I'm Ned Needlen. I'm Dusty Bottoms, So together we're the Three,
11: three Amigos.
9: <laughs> among others did more than
10: a billion dollars at the box office during the 1980s. Oh, those wonderful movies, good God. That was my mark of success, getting into the movies and making them funny. I could really write my own stuff uh, in movies and tell people where to go and whatnot. Does
9: this proposition entail my dressing up as Little Bo Peep? Telling people where to go seemed important to him then and still seems to be now. Is that what you loved about him? Fletch was closest to you as a person?
10: Yeah, the uh, attitude. I don't know. I, smug. I'm I'm getting too old to answer these things. Well, smug. Yes, f- you. Oh, uh, I'm sorry.
9: Cornelius Crane Chase was born into an old line New York City family that dates back to before the American Revolution. His parents divorced when he was young. You always ask a comedian, "Why'd you become a comic?" Did a part of it come from the pain?
10: I think if you speak to many comedians, they'll say the pain, the fear. It comes from their childhood somewhere, you know. He loved to hang out with his father, a book editor who counted
9: Truman Capote and Norman Mailer as friends. But he lived with his mother, who'd remarried an abusive man, a psychotherapist. That's when pain
10: and fear presented themselves. was violent toward my mother. Did he hit you? Yeah, he hit. I was afraid all the time. Uh, growing up uh, and i still have a lot of that fear in me so in a sense it did shape my path yeah i mean it, it sort of made me want to take those people out and bullies i hated bullies which might come
9: as a surprise to many who have felt his sting as they've crossed paths with chase over the years
10: every man should be punched in the face it's a rite of passage
9: his clashes with the creator and cast of Community, his last big role, Is that a cookie? which led to his departure from the show after several seasons in 2012, were just the latest headlines dealing with Chase's conflicts and behavior going all the way back to SNL. When you read that stuff, when people say, like, chevy has been a jerk, are those unfounded cheap shots?
10: I guess uh, you'd have to ask them. I, I don't give a crap. <laughs>
9: what? Go
10: no, Chevy Chase certainly does not. Uh, I'm who I am, and I like who I am. I don't care, and it's part of me that I don't care. I've thought about that a lot, and I don't know what to tell you, man. I, I just don't care.
9: And as the reception makes clear, at theaters where he now shows his films and takes questions, he's got plenty of fans who just don't care either. They're celebrating something. Yeah. What are they celebrating? Uh, you see, they're drunk. At seventy-eight, <laughs> Chevy Chase is who he is, which doesn't include a whole lot of introspection. I know. Look, I'm trying to be honest. I know, and but I
10: know it, it doesn't help me, I suppose. And I, I'm, I'm sort of hurt by the fact that I um, can't go any further with this. Uh, that you can't go deeper.
6: Yeah.
9: The man who could create a video off the top of his head for his friend Paul Simon's hit, You Can Call Me Out. I learned that in a car
10: going to the place where we recorded it.
9: You learned it on the way over?
10: Yeah. Never needed to go
9: too deep then, and still doesn't now. But well, you would like to work again.
10: Oh, I would love to work again. What kind of role? Uh, you know, the uh, the wife... I don't give a crap. I'll just want to work again.
3: <laughs> On the eve of this Valentine's Day, Josh Seftel and his mom are back, reminiscing.
16: Huh? Oops. What happened?
8: Hello? <laughs> wait, wait. There I am.
16: Okay, it's the season for loves. What do you think about when you hear the word crush?
8: Crush, when you have a crush on somebody else.
16: Why do they use that word?
8: I think you're kind of obsessed.
16: What does it feel like physically?
8: Physically, who remembers physically? Your hormones are starting to work and you want to look pretty. I guess you think you might be in love.
16: Do you remember the first time you had a
8: crush? Yeah, I think so. Mervyn Aronoff. I thought he was cute. He was very smart and very sweet and very nice.
16: Did you pursue him?
8: I didn't have to. We used to go and have cherry Cokes together after school. The place where we went for Cokes was down the street from my best friend's house. And we'd talk about the soda shop and Mervyn, and then I'd go home.
16: Did you ever kiss, wait, what was his name, Mark?
8: Mervyn Aronoff. I kissed him once. Really? Yeah.
16: What was it like? icky. Really? <laughs> what happened when you guys split up?
8: I had another boyfriend.
16: Do you think Mervyn was upset when you started dating another guy?
8: Things didn't get serious in those days. You had a boyfriend for a couple of weeks and then you had another boyfriend and then three weeks later you had another boyfriend. It was a long time ago Josh. It feels so long ago that it feels like I'm telling you a story about somebody else.
16: Do you ever feel like he's the one that got away?
8: There was a couple there, but not him.
16: Uh huh. How does it make you feel to talk about this stuff?
8: It makes me feel old. It's kind of sweet. It kind of gives you warm, fuzzy feeling, makes you feel good.
16: What role do these kind of memories have in your life?
8: You know, I, I wouldn't think about this unless you brought it up. I mean, maybe I did once in a while.
16: Do you ever have crushes now?
8: Oh, maybe an orange crush. (laughs) You never give up. Find me somebody. These men, if they're 80, they want a 65-year-old woman. Imagine how old the man would be that might find me attractive. I don't need that trouble. Maybe a puppy, or maybe just the way I am is the best. I'm pretty happy with my life.
3: Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning.
0: If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music.